innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it Make it way harder for them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff, rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight! WHUPLP Hillsboro, North Carolina, the center of the known world. This is the Cage Side Concussion Cast, your source for the fighting arts in the Carolinas and beyond. My name is Jeff Shaw, and today we have a very special guest from Gracie Raleigh, one of the mainstays of the North Carolina grappling scene, Jason Bumpkin Wingate. Jason teaches at Gracie Raleigh, is a four-stripe brown belt, and is one of the more technical guys in the area. So I'm really excited to talk to Jason about his jiu-jitsu journey, about teaching, about training, about his relationship with Hobson Mora, and about a bunch of other stuff. But first, I got to tell you how to get a hold of us. You can always email the show at cagesidewhup at gmail.com. You can get at us on Twitter and Instagram at cagesidewhup. That's at cagesidewhup. Or you can go on our Facebook page at Cageside Radio, where we always post certain bonus content. We're going to be posting some extra photos, maybe some good memories. And uh, you can always engage with us in those channels. So let's get right into the show. Um, let's start with the news segment. So we have a few um Small but impactful bits of news that I want to get to. First of all, uh, in MMA news, uh, local fighter Basie Settle, Basie from training out of Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, won his fight on Saturday night uh, in uh, Wilson, North Carolina. He won by unanimous decision. That runs his MMA record to 3-1 and one, uh, with three straight wins. So really excited for him. Congratulations to Basie. Uh, in related MMA news, uh, Daniel Branch, who's been on the show a couple times, uh, formerly the head case, the artist formerly known as the head case, now known as the executive, training out of Gracie Raleigh, Jason Wingate's school. Um, so Daniel has a big fight, biggest fight of his career this Friday in Atlantic City, New Jersey. I know that you uh, can get tickets from Daniel. Uh, Trevor will actually be making the road trip with Daniel for that fight and is going to corner him. So if you're interested in checking that out, you can get tickets from Daniel or you can listen to the show for a full recap where Trevor is going to call in next week. So good luck to Daniel Branch in that fight. Finally, just a couple of jujitsu update notes. Uh, the Atlanta, no, sorry. Not the Atlanta Open, the Charlotte International Open, the first uh, IBJJF tournament ever in uh, North Carolina, is going to be October 8th. Registration is open now. I know that's going to fill up quick. So if you do jujitsu and you're interested, you should uh, get on that and sign up at IBJJF.org. There will be a bunch of U.S. grappling tournaments coming up in, in Virginia that we'll get to and promote uh, later on. But for that, uh, that's the news, and on the other side of this break, we're going to talk to Gracie Raleigh instructor and local scene mainstay Jason Bumpkin Wingate. Fighting is, is wonderful, man. Fighting is, oh my God, it's, it's literally like a play. You can just be any character you want. It's the Cage Side Concussion Cast on WHUPFM.org. Jason Wingate is a brown belt, one of the most technical jiu-jitsu practitioners in the area, teaches at Gracie Raleigh, where he also trains out of, and has a lot of tremendous stories because he's trained with uh, some really incredible practitioners of jiu-jitsu over the years. I'm really excited for the next few minutes to talk to my good friend, Jason Bumpkin Wingate. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Of course. We, we've meaning to have you, on, have you on for a long time, so I'm really glad that the timing has worked out for us. Uh, maybe we could get started by uh, starting... Maybe we can get started by talking about how you got your start training jujitsu. And I think a lot of people, we got some questions from the listeners. A lot of them are wondering how you came by the nickname Bumpkin. <laughs> Excellent. So I'll get into the nickname in a little bit. But to begin with, um, I started doing martial arts around the age of 13 um, in West Virginia. And I started off doing a traditional Japanese or Okinawan karate and continued to do that through high school. Um, then when I transitioned into undergrad at Radford University, it was club week and we were looking around um, and I saw the karate and the martial arts clubs there and they just didn't seem very fitting. And when my parents were riding around with me, um, we passed by on downtown Radford, a little place um, back then that was known as Team Man in Reality Fighting. And... 
we stopped by and they were sparring in Valley Tudo shorts and, you know, just kind of slobber knockering each other around at the point in time. And I looked at my mother and I said, I want to do this. I want to sign up here. So that's, that's the intro. And I started, um, back in two, back in 1999, uh, was my first official jujitsu class at what was then Team Man in Reality Fighting. And did you train directly under Tim Manon? Yes, I did. And so Tim Tim is a pretty legendary, not just jiu-jitsu guy, a Henzo Gracie guy, right? Yes, so Tim um, originally started off under Jacare and at Alliance. And when I started with Tim back in 99, he was a blue belt at the time. And he was traveling back and forth to Atlanta under Jacare and um, also during that same period, he got his purple belt under Jacare, but during that same period, Henzo Gracie was coming to Radford University for an event called Karate College, and he was bringing down guys like Paul Crichton and some of his other um, top guys, and eventually uh, Hen- uh, Tim transitioned under Henzo. Um, I actually have a, a neat little Henzo story, too. So when I was doing and practicing karate at the time, um, Radford University, where I got my degree in uh, biology in undergrad, is not that far from my house. And I was looking through karate magazines, and they actually had advertisements for something called Karate College that's um, run by Dr. Jerry Beasley, who's a um, Dan Insanante, I guess, um, a practitioner. But he runs an event called Karate College. And the very first year I went was in 1996, and Henzo Gracie was actually there. And so my first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu experience with a Gracie was in 1996, and I'll, I'll share the photo of Baby Bumpkin with his little shaved head and Henzo smiling. But that was really, really interesting to actually see Jiu-Jitsu. And I also asked him, asked him about a triangle and basically like, how does a triangle choke work? And I got put in a triangle at the young age of 16, not even knowing what a tap was. And of course, he was nice and let me out of it. But I still don't think I've been triangled that tight in my entire life. But um, so we had lots of lots of fun times with Henzo. Um, I've earned my my blue and my purple belt under Henzo and Tim Manning. And um, <clears throat> then when I transitioned um, from graduate school or into graduate school, um, Tim told me, hey, these guys, Jason, Jason Colbreth and Billy Dowie are here. Um, you should check them out. So kind of after a few months of getting settled in in uh, graduate school and realizing that I was fiending for some jiu-jitsu and needed that back in my life, I decided to start training um, jiu-jitsu with uh, Jason and Billy at, um, at what was then Rima. And well, Rima still exists, but when they were all out of Rima. Wow, a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about there. For one thing, two things that are always welcome on the show are uh, Henzo Gracie stories and Baby Bumpkin photographs, and so we'd love to post that photo to our mm-hmm. Facebook if you can find it. Um, and wow, what a great thing to be able to to train that early on with uh, with some legends of the, of, of the art. Many of your listeners will also remember Tim Mannon had a memorable fight with another of our guests, Jake Whitfield, one of the toughest fights Jake ever had, and so. So that was a, that had to be was that when you were training with Tim or you had you already moved down and started training with Jason and Billy? I had already moved down at that point in time. Um, I had seen Tim fight in several of the elite Valley Tudos, and actually at the time I had even you know seen Jason Colbreth fight and Billy Dowie was there. Who seeing him the, for the first time in person and seeing this guy with a shaved head and a demon work on the back of his head was rather intimidating. But um, not a lot know. of demon orcs in West Virginia. Sadly, not. I'm sure there are more. Apparently, there have been people dressing up like clowns hitting around some of these small towns in the area, which is making local news there. But um, clowning is a lifestyle choice, like th- anything else. So, um, the other thing I want to ask you about eventually, when we get into your, you know, we're talking about your training journey, and we're going to continue yes. down that path. Later, I want to ask you about teaching, some of the teaching you do at Gracie Raleigh, your philosophy of teaching, how that compares to your role as a college professor. You mentioned you got a degree in biology from Radford. You're also, are you all but dissertation on your PhD? I am ABD, so I am at the last step. So, not quite Dr. Bumpkin, but it's in the works. 
Dr. Bumpkin is, if anything, going to be the only better nickname than Bumpkin. And uh, so we'll get into the difference into your teaching philosophy, both in terms of college and in, in jiu-jitsu in a bit. But let's continue with your training journey. So you move down to North Carolina as a purple belt. You start to, uh, to train at Forged, or what was then Rima with Billy and Jason and sort of take it from there. Excellent. Um, yeah, so um, Jason was teaching um, most of the classes there. Um, Billy would stop in from time to time, but, I mean, this was early on. One of the first people who, um, who moved down and started training then at that period in time, too, um, uh, baseball, Greg Johnson was there. Um, Ryan Schmidt had moved down. He was a new blue belt at the time. Um, Malik Telford, um, David Telford, yeah. Telford. Yeah, t- he's, he goes by both names. But, so, um, he was also I'm there. <clears throat> so it was kind of seeing some of the early roots of, of jiu-jitsu growing in North Carolina. You know, when I first moved down, uh, Jason and Billy were both purple belts. And then shortly later, um, like right after I had officially signed up at Rima at the time, um, Jason and Billy had um, earned their brown belts under Hoist. Mm-hmm. So, what do you remember the first time you met Hoist Gracie? I do actually remember the first time I met Hoist Gracie, and there's a funny Billy story that goes along with this as well. So, this was maybe in uh, I want to say 2006 or 2007, but it was right when Hodger Gracie was going to make his MMA debut, and he was fighting Ron Waterman, and we meet up at um, at a friend's house, and Hoist is there, and Billy's there, and it's just odd because we're just sitting, waiting on these fights to happen, and Billy looks at looks at Hoist and says, "This is Bumpkin. He's a Henzo Gracie purple belt. He can beat any." He says that a Henzo Gracie purple belt can beat any Hoist Gracie purple belt, and then Hoist just looked at me and said, "We'll see." So. We fast forward on to the next day of the seminar, and I was super excited. You know, it was my first time ever being on the mats with Hoist, and um, I went up to him and I asked for a picture, and he was like, "Oh, he's like, he was like, oh, you're the 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 Henzo Gracie um, purple belt. I saw you roll," and that was all he said to me. And then after that, he. Uh, we were taking pictures, and he was signing memorabilia, and I asked him to sign my belt. And he looks at me completely dead straight face and says, man, I did not give you this belt. I cannot sign it. And I was just crushed. And, of course, he takes it away from me and signs it. But I was just, like, broken on the inside. And it was it was so sad. And I'm sure that they all got good laughs out of that because I try to be the nicest person in the world. Poor purple belt bumpkin, un- unaware of the troll squad in, 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 in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, so what, what year was that? Probably when, when Hodger made his MMA debut, so probably 2006 or 2007. Mm-hmm. I'd have to go to the internet box and find out for sure. Yeah, the internet knows everything. Uh, if, if only I could be like that. So, so after your time with Billy and Jason, you and you've, you've been friends with Brandon Garner for some time, right? And how did I, I don't even know how you met Brandon. Um, we met Brandon. He was actually coming into Rima to teach, and he would substitute for some classes. And along this time, um, what was then CrossFit North Carolina was opening up, and we were kind of transitioning out of Rima and into CrossFit North Carolina, which eventually became Forge Fitness. So I had met him through there, and um, we had all went out to we had all went out to a, a going away party for one of our friends, and Brandon said that he had he had a room opening up, and he wanted to know if anyone needed a roommate or anything. And I said, "Well, my lease is about to expire at the time, and <clears throat> you know I'm looking to get out of my little graduate student studio." So um, I moved in with him, and we've been living together for nine years now, I guess. So pretty much common law, even though North Carolina doesn't have common law. we got to fix that. And, uh, <laughs> and we should also talk about Fran the Bulldog at some point because I, I see the pictures, and wow. She's amazing. She's a wonderful, wonderful diva of a bulldog. As well she should be. As well she should be. So you, you, so people who listen to the show or are in the scene know very well who Brandon Garner is. Uh, you know, Hoist Gracie Black Belt, very accomplished professional MMA fighter, one of the most accomplished MMA fighters North Carolina has produced. Um, 
And so eventually you you the you would go on to open Gracie Raleigh with Brandon, or at least, uh, how would you describe that? Um, Brandon said that he was um, looking to open up an academy um, in uh, downtown Raleigh and asked me if um, I would uh, like to go there and coach with him. And I, of course, I had to say yes. So. Yeah, no one says no to Brandon Garner. That is very true. And, you know, we didn't talk much about, about your competitive journey. And so before we get into your teaching journey with Gracie Raleigh, because I do I, I want to spend extensive amounts of time on that because that's where you're at now. Gracie Raleigh has a very distinct personality in the scene uh, and produces a lot of really, really talented, really tough guys. But, like, I, I've seen a few of your competition matches at, at Brown Belt. And so I'm wondering, as by way, two, two questions. By, are there memorable competition matches that stand out for you? Because I know that there are some of your competition matches that stand out for me. And I'm also going to ask you about what you think you got out of competition, both as a practitioner and as a teacher uh, of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Excellent. So when I first started, there really weren't any Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competitions at all. I mean, U.S. grappling wasn't around. Um, there really wasn't even the Bud Cup, which is, um, you know, still has some Bud Cup-esque events in North Carolina. But... So I really only competed once as a white belt, and it was actually at a karate tournament that I had decided to do. So shortly after I signed up for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, a local karate tournament back home that I always go to, I competed there. And they just midway through announced that they were having Jiu-Jitsu matches. So I... You know, after doing my, my katas and all of my point finding and everything, I decided to, to do that. And I didn't even have my white belt. I didn't even have a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gi. And I told them, I was like, I've been doing jiu-jitsu for all of six months. And I would like to see if I can do this. And they're like, it's okay, you know. So I went in and competed and tried probably the ugliest double leg takedown ever. Like watching two kids run at each other with their heads down. And I got reversed and got armbarred, you know, probably in all of about a minute, minute and a half. But what's really memorable was the opponent's reaction after that. He got up from that and was a little rather cocky and said, that's why they call me the armbar king. <gasps> so I don't know if said person, and he wasn't even Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He was wearing a green belt or something, so he must have been some kind of Japanese or American jiu-jitsu person. So armbar king if you're out there. I kind of want to make a T-shirt that says "That's why they call me the Armbar King." Except for now, I know people would wear it non-ironically, and then and I just don't want to encourage that sort of behaviors, you know. But then um, I really didn't get to compete again until Purple Belt, so there was a a big gap in there of abs of not competing. Um, and you know, at the time, maybe one of the first Pendergrass tournaments I think that was out there was in two thousand and six. I uh, ended up competing in that, actually competed against Jacare's stepson, who basically dominated everyone that day. And, um, you know, I've, it took me a while to actually to get a win um, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competition. So I've, I went on a, a kind of a, a growth period, having not competed and just hopping in and not being an aggressive person overall. You know, so I was losing losing lots of matches on points and at the time, I think a lot of the referees didn't know the rules, and it was kind of like the wild, wild west at some of these early tournaments that were here, you know. And now everything, of course, is much more organized, and, you know, the referees are much better. Yeah, it's been, even in the, the six and a half years I've done jiu-jitsu, it's been really astonishing to see the growth of the art and, you know, the expansion of tournaments. Like you mentioned, the even the Bud Cup wasn't around when you started, and now, Every weekend, it seems like there's a U.S. grappling, there's an IBJJF tournament, there's Toro Cup now, there's Pro Jitsu, there's all these different. It must be it must be gratifying to see that kind of growth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's good to see your students, you know, go out there and compete, and to to have the opportunity to compete as well, you know, because it wasn't out there. I mean, even when I first started jujitsu. You know, there weren't a million YouTube videos. There was the website intheguard.com and basically on the mat, and that was it. And if intheguard.com posted a new video, you know, it it was like the most amazing thing. And it would be like, oh, this is a, a Tomonagi or this is a helicopter on bar. Man, this is the first knee bar I've ever seen. Because it was kind of like 
the the techniques were so kind of limited then because there wasn't a lot of material. You know, you had you had the original Gracie VHS tapes, and I had Hanzo Gracie and Craig Kukuk, which you know. Which is still a great video, by the oh, way. Oh, it is a phenomenal video, and I still teach my students um, moves from that, you know. And, and it was really neat, too, because the way that they also incorporated, you know, then there was no real separation between sport jiu-jitsu and, and jiu-jitsu itself. You kind of learned it all together as jiu-jitsu. And when I talk about Hobson a little later, we'll kind of bring that back up again. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a bunch about you as a teacher, and I know it seems to me that that is your focus now. It's something you're very skilled at, something you think a lot about, something you do in your professional life as well as your, your jiu-jitsu life. So let's talk a little bit about that. I, I want to I talk to you about your, your journey as a teacher with Gracie Raleigh, some of your students. If you were to describe your instructional philosophy in, in just a few sentences, how would you, and does that instructional philosophy differ when you're teaching in a college classroom than when you're teaching on a jiu-jitsu mat? I think that in some ways the the first thing that always comes about is everyone's safety, you know, and the second thing that comes about when I think about teaching and my role as a teacher is that's a time that I'm on the mat to dedicate to my students. It's not time for my professional development and my personal development. That's time that I devote to them, and that's my sole focus. Some instructors don't necessarily aren't able to separate the two. You know, it's like they teach and then they train and they may not know who's rolling with who. But, you know, I'm always aware of who's rolling with who and the mat space. And, you know, because they like to kind of come together in this nucleus and want to collide heads every 30 seconds or so, even though they have 1,500 square feet of mat or more. It's, it's amazing. It's the law of jujitsu attraction. No matter how big the mat space, no matter how few the people rolling, people will collide with each other if you, if you don't pay attention right. to them. Um, as far as my, my philosophy on teaching, um, my, my goal and kind of what I consider my jiu-jitsu is advanced basics, you know, because we grew up, you know, through my jiu-jitsu journey, learning the basics and doing them over and over and drilling them in until they were repetitive. And, you know, even though I may watch the latest Barambolo video, I have to go into the class and say, what will benefit the majority of these people the most? And it's kind of another thing of taking yourself out of your training. You know, like I would love to go in and just show and teach everything that I've learned with Hobson, but will the majority of the people in my class be able to do that? Is that something that they can do? Do they need to learn how to do a, a rolling a rolling back takeoff of an armbar escape counter? Um, and the answer for most of them is probably not, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's knowing where your students are and knowing where they are in their jujitsu development and what will help them out the most. How does teaching a, in a college classroom differ from teaching in a jujitsu classroom? Is it just that you can't choke the college students? Um, I think that's a big part of it, you know, as much as I would like to from time to time. Um, you know, I never, you know, <laughs> even shake hands with my students or or anything along those regards. Hands are too deadly. Can't shake hands with the, yeah, your hands are too deadly. It's you know, the, you're the dim mock. It'd be too tempting. <laughs> yes, as tempting as it would be to dim mock um, local community college students. I, I will not be doing that. That will not be on our next exam. But um, teaching in the college setting is, is fun, you know. Um, it helps a lot with teaching jujitsu because you have to have a good awareness of, of everything. And it also helps a lot with your time management and how to really break down things and to make lesson plans and under understand what's going on and to, once again, you know, convey the knowledge that those students need and to help them grow and to help them develop, you know. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm fascinated with curriculum development. Um, in, in all aspects of life, but particularly in jiu-jitsu because it's one of the things I'm most passionate about. And you're one of the most thoughtful people about how to instruct. And yes. so you developed a, a drill-to-kill class at, at Gracie Raleigh. And I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that, how that idea came about. And we can use that as a segue to talk about the diversity of the variety of classes that you ch- teach at Gracie Raleigh. Yes, yeah, so um, actually drill-to-kill started off um, – with Jason Jellen teaching um, at Gracie Raleigh, and he brought over, he brought over kind of the house style of of drilling, which is 
you know, you're, you're going to have a really intense warm up and we're going to drill these moves until you can't get them wrong. And then we're going to roll. Um, I've kind of transitioned and taken uh, drill to kill to a little bit of a different place. Um, I try to typically involve lots of kind of functional movements or agility type movements into drill to kill. And it depends on the focus of what I'm doing. Um, so we kind of drill things from a few different aspects. One, um, you can take a move in isolation, you know, one single move in isolation, and you can drill that, you know, which is good. And we do that a lot in some warm-ups in Drill to Kill and in some of my other classes. Then you can kind of take a drill from a more linear perspective, from a match perspective, saying, okay, we're going to start with this guard pull and we're going to go into a sweep and we're going to go into a finish um, from there and drill that on the timer, um, eventually adding in a little more resistance and giving the students, especially the ones who are more advanced, time to be able to um, improvise a little bit and counter some, some resistance. And then something that I'm, I'm getting from Hobson and that I got from him more is kind of more taking a position and almost making a decision tree out of that position. So, for example, when I was with him and doing my private, I asked him about how he drills and I wanted to see. And I was surprised that he didn't really go about like a linear approach like I was talking about, like setting up these match specific things. And he was doing basically a lot more of a decision tree. And we went through a decision tree from initial guard or Z guard or scissor half guard, as Andrew Smith calls it. And we went through okay, your opponent puts their hand here, this is how I'm going to counter, this is what I'm going to do to come up and finish, and these are my options from here. Okay, your opponent posts their leg here because they want to grab your pants and they want to run you across maybe into a leg drag or knee smash type position. How are we going to counter that? How are we going to finish off of that? What are our options from there? So, and I've done that some, but, you know, to really go and break up break positions down and to, to make a decision tree out of every position and add that into my drills is going to be something that I really look at and work into in the future so that those students, you know, whatever option that their opponent gives them, they're going to have a counter for it. And Drill to Kill, we also do um, lots of little situational things as well, so kind of 50% resistance in some positions, incorporating in the drills and kind of more of like a linear approach. Um, and I do a lot of drills that also have, um, that are continuous in the regards of, of for example, Dave Camarillo has something that he calls Jiu-Jitsu 101, which we warm up with quite a bit, which is from the person on the bottom escaping mount in a bridge and roll fashion, coming up, passing the guard, reattaining mount, and then the opponent does it. So lots of times I'll do that for a warm-up. And again, let the, you know, for the people that are more beginner or a little less experienced, let them focus on the passes that I may have been showing. For the people who are more advanced, you know, give them the freedom to expand and do more passes that they've been doing as long as they go in the rules of that position or that drill. You have a wide array of students and, and some really accomplished students, both in jiu-jitsu and mixed martial arts. Let's talk briefly about the man whose shirt you're wearing, Daniel Branch, the executive. He has a big fight coming up. How different is it for you teaching jiu-jitsu for MMA when, when you're working with somebody like Daniel who's preparing for a fight as opposed to sport grappling? Um, I really let, let that part of, um, of the jiu-jitsu side go to, go to Brandon and go to some of the other people there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done with, with face-punching. Um, at Manon's, we used to, our submission grappling class was basically an MMA class, and we would wear the big 16-ounce gloves, and um, one of my good buddies um, from Tim Manon's, um, Navid, who was also a wrestler at Virginia Tech at the time, um, you know, punched my skull in quite a bit, or punched my face pretty good, as did Manon, so I try to not get punched in the face or the head at all, but, you know, uh, Daniel does come in to um, rolling classes and grappling classes and does put on the gi and you know we work there and whenever he comes to open mat 
and roles, um, you know, I always roll with him and work with him then. But um, more more teaching on the, the, the fundamental side and the sport side as well. I think it's really important for MMA fighters to train in the gi. Like, and, and, you know, I say this as someone who, like you, is not about getting punched in the face. We're both too pretty for that. But the but but like you know I've had I've had a bunch of folks on the show um, talk about that and I guess with your experience at Manon's, what's your take on the gi for MMA training? Did Tim Manon do that? Do you believe in it? Absolutely. Um, I remember one time um, in in undergrad when I was training with Manon, we went through a long period of just doing no gi. You know, college students were poor and they didn't want gis, and no one really wanted to to don the pajamas. And then Manon went up to New York with Henzo's, and I think it was pre- he was predominantly training in the gi. And I don't know if the gi had given him some trouble from not having it on in some time, but he came back and he was like, all right, all of you are required to wear gi. These nights are gi now, you know. So, um, but, you know, we, you know, you just kind of always wear it, and it's always um, part of jiu-jitsu. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Part of jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of your other some of your other jujitsu students. You know, you definitely have students at Gracie Riley. Evan Arredondo is another who's been on the show who fight and who aspire to fight. But then there are other folks that y- you do v- your your team does very well at local sport competition tournaments. Uh, let's talk about one of my favorite local guys to watch and to compete against, although we haven't in a while. Chris Luter. Um, maybe you could t- talk about how Luter came to train at Gracie Riley and his journey as a student. Yes. Yeah, so um, originally, uh, Chris, as well as Daniel and David Grissom and some others were training with um, Michael Somerville out of uh, Team Edge. And I think they kind of, um, you know, Michael wasn't wasn't teaching as much and thought it would be better to transition those students over to Gracie Raleigh. Um, Luder is is not human. I don't know how he how he does that and how he never gets tired. And plus he does like like real man physical labor and you cannot break his grips for anything. And he just he just goes, um, you know, sometimes maybe a little wildly, but he'll make it happen. And he does not stop. And his heart is probably bigger than the studio. So, yeah, it's unreal. Like, I I mean, I I I think I've told this story before, but one of my favorite competition matches is oddly enough, one that I lost. And it was one against Chris Luter, where. For about, I, th- I think it was a seven-minute match. From for about five and a half minutes, man, it was an awesome back-and-forth battle. We were both going, and it was tremendous. And then, about a minute and a half left, I was like, "He has not slowed down a s- even a little bit. How is this possible?" <laughs> and and you know, from there, it went, the match went bad for me. But it was still one of the most fun matches that I've had. And like, I, I went, I, I I walked gasping off the mat. And I think Daniel Branch was there, and I was like, "Man, he never get tired." And Daniel just chuckles and says, "He does that to everybody." <laughs> yeah, it's. It's it's fun to watch. I have to use the the Jedi mind tricks on Chris Luter or bait him into something or just be craftier or wait for him to make a mistake because you can't keep up that pace and go with him and he's incredibly strong. Like I said, he has like I do real physical labor hands that you can't break those grips. So, so everybody wants me to ask about the haircuts. You know, I had more than I, I put out a hail on social media for questions for you, and everybody was like, "Where are the Gracie? What's up with the haircuts? Where do the Gracie Raleigh guys get their haircut? How did that start?" I don't know, man. The, we just want to have the best jujitsu and the best hair out there, and I think that we're we're accomplishing both of those goals. Um, even though I'm in between haircuts right now, kind of don't know what I'm going to do. Um, yeah, you could you could uh, you could uh, get some gel going, get like the Dominic Cruz widow's peak if you <laughs> wanted right now. But because you you did you did have the undercut for a while, and uh, and I think for a long for a lot of for a long time, a lot of you guys were rocking undercuts. And was that when you were across the street from a barbershop and they were? Yeah, so we were super close to to a barbershop, and a lot of us still go there. Um, Arrow in downtown Raleigh, which they do phenomenal haircuts. Shameless plug on them, but um, I don't know. It just kind of happened. We just. Uh, a, a dapper group of killers. You could do a lot worse to have goals than to have the best jujitsu and the best hair. I mean, those are two pretty good goals, I yeah. think. And uh, in whatever combat sport that you do. Um, so, uh, teaching wise, you teach a wide variety of classes. You know, we mentioned drill to kill, but you also teach fundamentals. You teach some advanced classes as well. How do how do the classes that you teach vary, and how does a typical class go for you? Um, or fun- is there a typical class? Sometimes they kind of melt and merge into each other. You know, I may 
kind of show some things in fundamentals and bring that back to to the advanced class. Um, I think with with fundamentals, it's it's really fun because you get to see these people who are brand new, and you can get to see them build their confidence and start to kind of understand what jujitsu is about. Um, and I think that that's really rewarding, you know, to see someone who, when they walked in for their day one class, didn't know anything. And it's like now they can shrimp. Now they can maybe do some self-defense. Now they can also do an arm bar or escape mount. And seeing them do that and then transition into when they can roll and actually start to apply that, man, it's so fulfilling. You know, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like, let's say you get the chance to compete at the Masters Worlds at Brown Belt. And at that same tournament, one of your students gets a chance to compete. And you can only pick one to win. Who is it? It has to be the student. It always has to be the student. Um, you know, I don't know how many more competitions I'll do or when I'll get back into that or when life will um, allow me to get back into that, you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's it's always the student, you know, watching watching them do well. And especially watching them put together things that you teach them. And when they come off the mat and they're like, hey, Bumpkin, you know, your your overhook series triangle, you know, really worked or this really worked. And to see students, you know, using things that you taught them and doing well with it, you know, uh, that's that's so rewarding. You also mentioned refereeing earlier, and that's a way that you have been active in the competition scene in the past is, you know, and, and one of my memories from a tournament is, uh, you referee a lot of kids' matches because th- those are really important matches. And U.S. Grappling actually got a letter from somebody that said, hey, you know, th- I don't even think they knew your name, but they had a picture of you and they were like, this guy did a great job of keeping the kids safe. Um, maybe you can talk about refereeing and what that means to you. Sure. That was actually when we had went up to um, Chicago and, um, you know, being kind of nice, timid bumpkin, I wasn't – I wasn't aware of like how much banter and how much those people really yell at the referees and man it was it was disheartening. I mean, I was I was stopping matches and these coaches are like, "Why did you stop the fight? Why did you stop the fight?" And I was like, "I was refereeing the smallest kids they were. They were like under 70 pounds." I was like, "Do you want to see this kid get their arm broken?" And, you know, evidently went through yes, right? <laughs> like uh, evidently, yes. I was like, "But you know, that was that was a rough day. And then later on that day, um, Miguel Torres was there, who's a phenomenal person. And, you know, I walked up to him and he was like, man, you did. I wanted to tell you this earlier, but you did a great job refereeing the kids, watching out for them. He's like, I've been to other tournaments that I won't say their name and, you know, see kids go out on stretchers and see kids get their arm broken and all of this. And I'm like, you know, it's it's not worth it, you know. For the parents and for the kids, you know, this is something that I think that they could have a lifelong journey with. And, you know, something like that could be a reason for a kid to never come back or a parent to never let their kid go into jujitsu again. Yeah, Miguel Torres is a super nice guy. Oh, like, he's, he's the man. He's so nice. I have to tell, I've never told my Miguel Torres story on the air, and so I think it's time for me to tell it, which is, uh, so the IBJJF has really onerous patch requirements for competition, <laughs> and like... And they and they're, they're, they have this immense book about the uniform requirements, mm-hmm. and they're Byzantine, and the enforcement is really uneven. And so one year at the Worlds, Ryan Hansler, who you may remember, big, mm-hmm. beastly wrestler guy, was competing at Purple Belt. And I was sort of there as one. I'd competed maybe the day before. And so, you know, we're, we're there to support him, and he goes into the bullpen. And none of us really know, I don't think, like how – persnickety they can get about the gi requirements and so ryan has two patches and they're like these patches have to come off well nobody has a seam ripper and nobody brought a pocket knife because you can't get that through security and so i'm like what are we going to do and so i start sawing at the seams of the patches with with a quarter with like the the rough edges (laughs) of a quarter and that's just not happening and and the referee and the the ring coordinators are like you got to go man you got to go you're gonna get disqualified man and they're like and so i do the only thing i can think of which is I've, I've exposed one edge of this patch and I just bite it with my teeth and I tear this patch off with my teeth and I just hear this satisfying rip and Ryan's like, what just happened? Because it was his back patch, right? The big right. patch in the middle of his back. And all of a sudden I hear, wow, this guy's a G. <laughs> and I turn with this patch in my mouth and right next to me is Miguel Torres <laughs> and he high fives me as I have this patch in my mouth and I'm like, I just did the most barbaric <laughs> business ever. But Ryan... Didn't get disqualified and won that match, so it was all worth it. That's awesome. Yeah, it was good times. 
so yeah, so uh, clearly your focus has been on you know, getting your PhD, teaching, you know, in addition to teaching jujitsu. And so I'm wondering, like, uh, do you set goals for yourself vis-a-vis jujitsu? I mean, obviously teaching is important to you, but like when you think about, here's what I'd like to achieve, here's what I'd like to do. Um, wh- what kind of things do you think about? I think my goal is to have the most technical jujitsu that I possibly can. You know, my goal is to basically turn into Hopsamora one day, which will never happen. But, um, you know, I think that's my main goal is is right now it's longevity and how can I stay on the mats and how can I teach and continue to do this, you know, for another 17 years, you know, hopefully more. And sp- uh, that, that provides an ample opportunity to talk about Hobson Mura, who's a legend of jiu-jitsu, one of the most technical guys ever, just and, and superb to watch, just beautiful jiu-jitsu. You've had a, a relationship with him for, for many years where you've taken seminars, taken private lessons with him. Um, how did you start training with Hobson, and um, and what, what does training with Hobson do for you? Um, first of all, I have to kind of give a big shout-out to Steve Snyder, who runs RMNU um, in High Point. He's the, he's the man who brings Hobson here and who brings Gustavo Dantas and some other phenomenal teachers from um, RMNU out and Novunio. Um Definitely um, big thank you to him. He always sets up either a private lesson with him because one thing about Drill to Kill that's amazing is it's at Saturday at um, 11 a.m. One thing that's not amazing is it's every Saturday at 11 a.m., so I don't really get to get away to as many tournaments and get to do as many seminars. You know, Brandon obviously helps me out and works with me on those, you know, if something really big or something I really want to do comes out. But um, Steve Snyder is the man, um, and they just had a promotion um, yesterday, and one of his students who is going to NC State, Alan Brown, um, just earned his brown belt yesterday. And one of my good buddies from Roanoke, Virginia, um, Bobby Lindemood, earned his purple belt um, yesterday. So I have to give them their respects. But um, Steve has been bringing in Hobson for about the last seven or eight years, um, about once a year or so. So I always make it a priority. And I always know around September it's getting Hobson season. So I need to need to talk to him and text him and message him and be like, okay, when's the seminar? Can I do a private? Can I set aside a time to do a private? Does anyone want to do a co-private or anything like this? So I've been, you know, exposed to, to his jujitsu, and I just, I love his style, and it just, it, it's, it just fits. In some regards, it's almost a little unorthodox, like when we were kind of going through the decision tree, all of the decisions he did were something that I would have never thought of. So, but... In that regards, it's it's very creative. But if you kind of know his system and you know his jujitsu and you've seen his DVDs and watched him roll and people from RMNU that roll, you know, you understand their style. And he brings a lot of things back to some similar positions, which is familiar. But everything that he showed me, I was like, I did not expect any of these things to happen. And I was just blown away. You know, he always he always blows me away with his jujitsu and just his thought on jujitsu. Yeah, you know, if you ever have a if you ever have a hard time finding a taker for that co-private, your friendly neighborhood radio host would certainly uh, come up on that. And and I identify with that. You know, the thing about Hobson is you can't. You know, it, you use the word unorthodox, and that's a, the perfect word because once you see it, it's like I can totally understand why you would do that, even though I would never have thought of that in a thousand years. I would also use the word precise. Like I think if Hobson backsteps a hundred times and put a dime on the ground. He would hit that dime 100 out of 100 times. I've I've seen him do it. You know, I've seen him at a seminar teach, and they don't move, and his foot will hit in that exact position. And it's incredibly precise. And when I was talking to Hobson yesterday, or not yesterday, but Friday, um, he was he was kind of talking about the doors that are open in jiu-jitsu. So he says, you know, when you're a white belt, you can take a white belt and you can put them in a room, and there can be 100 windows. And tell them, okay, here are your escapes, here are your outs, here are your options. And they can just pick one and they can go out of it. You know, then when they step into into blue belt, it's like, okay, now there are 70 windows. You know, purple belt, you know, now there are, you know, 
60, 50, whatever windows. And, you know, brown belt, maybe 25, 30 windows. Black belt, he's like, man, they shut off all the windows. They're all closed. (laughs) So, you know, you have to, or it's just like they kind of open up for that split second, you know, and he was talking about, like, that's what you need to do. And we were talking yesterday, or we were talking Friday, and he was just talking about, you know, how to improve and kind of how to go to the next level. And he was just really big on, on sharpening all of your tools. He's like, man, you have to put out all your jujitsu every time you step out on the mats, mm-hmm. you know, and, and have all of your tools sharp and just razor sharp. He's like, I don't know how many techniques you know, but, you know, you, you should have your, your techniques sharp. And then we're kind of talking about, you know, in that precision in those regards about jujitsu and simplicity. And he's like, man, there's nothing simple in jujitsu. He's like, do you think that putting your hands, both hands in someone's collar and choking them is simple? It's not. And, you know, he was talking about Hodger. Um, and he was like, you know, Hodger's a 10-time world champion, and he does this to everyone, and no one can stop it. He's like, it's kind of like looking at a computer screen in those regards and you know i see all of the fancy blue lines on the screen now recording my voice but there's a lot of code that goes behind that and there's a lot of code that goes into your jujitsu and building your jujitsu up and that's kind of like brandon garner there's a there's an insane code behind his jujitsu he has incredible fail safes and his decision tree and his decision making skills are are top notch you know you you have to have like hawkeye precision and control to to stop him from moving around you you know and obviously he's a big person that's helped my jujitsu development especially over the last several years yeah brandon's jujitsu is incredible like the few times i've gotten the pleasure to roll with him he'll let me get to my a game spots and it just won't matter you know and because as you say like he has three options from every position and uh, I'm wondering, what are some of your, you know, you've lived with Brandon for many years, trained with him for many years. What are some of your most important memories of training with Brandon Garner? I would say probably one of the most, Im- not most important, but it was just awesome. Um, Carlos Lemos Jr. had just gotten his visa back and just gotten permission to come back to the States. And kind of like right before that, Brandon was kind of almost in like a funk with his jiu-jitsu, and he was thinking about going down and training with Carlos. And then Carlos gives him the news that he's coming to North Carolina, and he's going to come into North Carolina. So, you know, we, Carlos was in Durham, and we would just go and pick him up. And it would just be a session of Carlos Lemus Jr., who is a two-time world champion, you know, a several-time Pan American champion, Chicago Open champion at his age. And Brandon and man, I would just go there and just get destroyed by both of them. But then in my mind, I was like, okay, you know, if I'm rolling with these guys and, you know, trying to survive or barely surviving, you know, barely, barely treading water, staying afloat is kind of Joe Rogan says. But if I can do that, then man, what's anyone else going to do to me? What's anyone else going to throw at me? You know, because at the time, Brandon was like a four-stripe four or three-stripe brown belt. You know, Carlos is like a second or third-degree black belt. So, But those times were those times were fun. And just any time I get to roll with him, it's always a pleasure because it's just – I think we know each other's game so much, and it's like a little – it's like little micro, micro matches on, okay, he's going to do this and do this and – now I get to watch him teach a lot more. You know, he's taking a bigger role in teaching. And watching him teach is also phenomenal. You know, he's a phenomenal instructor as well. And a lot of our, our, our goals for our students, I think, are similar in that we want them to have absolutely solid fundamentals. And we want our classes to be that you could be a white belt coming into our classes and you'll get details out of it. Or you could be a brown or black belt and come into our classes and get details out of it on the basics or, you know, what I consider advanced basics. But, man, he's he's incredible. I mean, it's, it is it's just all of these little micro battles. But watching him teach, I kind of see some of his tricks and everything. And I'm like, if I could get burnt one thousandth less of a percent every time I roll with him over the course of 10,000 years, maybe – but goals know, are important, man. Goals are important, but it's like if I could get burnt that little less, or if I could stop him from getting cross face and underhook, you know, at this moment in time, and delay that as much as possible, you know, I'm gonna try. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I, you know, I started training about six and a half years ago, which was right at sort of when Brandon was still competing in MMA a little bit. But like, I, I I barely got the chance to to watch him compete. And you know, we all have journeys in our lives where we we have different priorities. And uh, but I tell you, every time when you know, and, and Bagels is making the Toro Cup matches now instead of me. But whenever I would make the Toro Cup matches, I would always ask, "Hey, who do people most want to see?" Brandon is the name, particularly the old school guys that comes up the most. That's just like, "Wow, we love watching that guy compete." Um, so you know, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's, if he's going to compete in jujitsu regularly again. But if uh, Brandon, if you're listening, and <laughs> and Jason, if you want to, if you want to communicate to him, people would love to see Brandon. Uh, uh, make some poor fool hate life for about an hour or whatever, or whatever they can set up anyway. Like, uh, so, so, so yes, yeah, so a training with Brandon, it's, it's exciting to hear that he's, he's back teaching as well uh, on a regular basis. How would you describe the difference between your and Brandon's teaching styles? You know, it's, it's really odd. I don't think that, that as far as the techniques that we show a lot of things very differently. Um, I think his idea of, of positional maintenance, his his top control and his positional maintenance and where he puts his hands in every position, he has he has coded out. You know that's part of his evil cyborgness, you know, from the future of jujitsu. But he he has an answer for everything, and you know I tried to build in and put in those things and develop. But there'll be times where we don't see each other in passing, and I'll put up a sweep. And he'll be like, oh, I just taught that, <laughs> you know, so it's like sometimes we kind of like, I don't know, sync on what we're showing and and everything. So, um, you know, I think that personality is probably the probably the difference, you know, in some regards, because I'm super happy and chipper all the time. And, you know, he's he's very focused all the time. And, you know, so it's it's a little different than that. So I think one one great thing about Gracie Raleigh is we do kind of have this yin and yang of instructors. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this actually leads to a point that I'm really interested in, which is you know I, I teach some fundamentals classes and Roy Marsh watched me teach one time and he said, wow, you know I can really see elements of the guys that you've learned from in the way that you, meaning me, teach. He's like, I can see a little bit of, you know, a lot of Seth, obviously, a lot of Seth Champ, a little bit of, of Roy, a little bit of Jay Quitfield. I'm wondering who would you cite as your primary influences that taught you how to teach and who do you th- and who do you think you teach most like I would say that my my fusion of jiu-jitsu is probably you know definitely a lot of Tim Mannon and Jason Billy and Brandon and then going out there in the jiu-jitsu world um, Dave Camarillo I've had the opportunity to do several privates with him and several seminars with him and his mentality on jiu-jitsu and training is is phenomenal mm-hmm. So a lot of that, um, he used to have a, a website up that was called MMA Instructional, and then he changed it to MMA Fiestra, and it was phenomenal. You know, he was teaching a lot on there. His brother was teaching on there. Kenny Florian was on there. Cabrini was even on there at one point in time. Paul Schreiner was on there. So I just watched those vi- videos over and over, you know, and just I'm like man I'm gonna try to teach like Dave Camarillo and try to break these things down and a lot of kind of training and philosophy stuff does come from him but you know other local people like Roy was really really pivotal in helping my jiu-jitsu and develop a lot and you know especially like things like trying to float on someone who has an incredible butterfly guard and then I get swept you know, and but still working on that because Dave Camarillo says that floating on top of someone is the most technical thing that you can do in jiu-jitsu. And like I said, I want to be the most technical person I can in jiu-jitsu. So I'm still stubborn and I've still been working on it for about eight years, but I'm slowly getting better at it. Yeah, Dave is a tremendous person to emulate, I think, and I, I also really love his jiu-jitsu philosophy. So you've been training for 17 years. So you mentioned that earlier. Yes. So next year your jiu-jitsu will be able to vote. You know, I'm not going to ask who your jiu-jitsu would vote for because that would violate FCC rules. But, like, in your last, you know, in, in all these different years, like, what, what are some of your fondest memories of training jiu-jitsu over, over low these many years? Oh, man, there are way too many. Um, I would say, you know, any time that you get to be – any time that you can go on the mat with, with someone who's legendary, you know, and going to seminars, I love seminars. And I kind of break seminars down into a few categories. I mean, you get like the the super classic, like 
Hoist and Hoyler and Rodrigo Seminars and Gordo and Osiander, you know, you get that kind of thing. And then you get some more of modern jiu-jitsu people, like I've been to Shaolin and Hobson, Gustavo Dantas, who probably teaches one of the best seminars I've ever been to from a Brazilian. And then you have, like, American jiu-jitsu seminars, the guys out there, like the Andrew Smiths and the Seth Smiths and Ryan Halls, you know. Paul Shriners, those guys, you know, so it's kind of like a, I break the seminars down into that. But going out there and exposing yourself and, you know, getting to, to train with such a wide variety of people as well. And I think one thing, and lots of people have said it here, but the openness of, of North Carolina jiu-jitsu allows jiu-jitsu to be a lot more fun. You know, I could go to, you know, like Steve Snyder, you know, invites me up all the time to come out there and always like watches out for me and gets me a spot with with Hobson or those people but you know just the openness that you can go and you can travel to all these places and you know build these experiences and see new games um is is incredible yeah I think that's one of the most beautiful things about jiu-jitsu is the way that it, it grows and, and even beyond the act itself the you know the relationships that you create through jiu-jitsu so is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have or any story that you were like, I hope I get to tell this story on the air? Not, not incredibly. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, all kinds of after the, after the fact Henzo stories I can tell you from be, Henzo being in a party town. Well, I'll never say no to a Henzo story, but I do got to make sure that we talk about the, uh, the origin of the nickname Bumpkin. So when I first came to, um, to North Carolina and first came to um, to train at uh, what was then Rima or what, well when they were at Rima, um, there were probably five or six Jasons there at the time. And Jason Colbreth has the Highlander mentality that there can be only one. So pretty much anyone who was there who had the name Jason had a nickname, and they were just kind of thinking about you know different nicknames and they're like you know who's that guy who comes in you know the country bumpkin and then they started calling me bumpkin which I kind of actually love the nickname because it is kind of recognizable and all of these people kind of you know around the land I guess or around you know North Carolina Virginia and even extending on you know know me as bumpkin so I think it's kind of neat that it it sticks with me but I also kind of love it because it's like an incredible oxymoron of who I really am so yeah, right. The college professor bumpkin. There is also the uh, yeah, I love it because it's distinctive. I love it because it's instantly identifiable. And given the era, the nicknames that were being given out in that era, it's not near even on the derisive scale. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in, in the few minutes we have left, any any final thoughts, anybody that you want to particularly thank that you haven't mentioned? You know, obviously, um, I want to thank you for having me on. Um, thanks to all of the people who have helped me along this incredible jujitsu journey. And thank you to my students, and, you know, obviously thank you for Brandon Garner for allowing me to teach there and, um, you know, helping develop my jiu-jitsu and helping us to breed a bunch of killers. One last thing is that my students said that since there is the GR squad that you should rename this to the squad cast since I'm on here. So I'll have to give a shout-out to the squad and all of, all of those people in GR land. Considered 100% official, this episode shall be n- dubbed the Squadcast. So, Jason Bumpkin Wingate, thank you so much for coming in. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, I am Jeff Shaw. We will be back at you next week. Let us know what you thought about the show. Uh, email us at cagesidewhoop at gmail.com. Subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And see you next week. <laughs>